Welcome on behalf of the Canadian Club. And I always do. I enjoy to hear uh, the warm conversation amongst friends and colleagues at our Canadian Club events. It's always a pleasure to be able to bring great people together to enjoy our programs and to also enjoy one another's company. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, and please uh, join me in welcoming our television uh, viewers and webcast viewers. And this program will be uh, broadcast on Rogers TV as well in the days to come. And we'd also like to thank Media Events CA, Canada's online events space, and VVC for live streaming today's event. My name is Danny Asaf, and I have the pleasure of serving as the President of the Canadian Club of Toronto for this 2015-2016 season, and it's an honour in particular to be your host today. Thank you again, we know how busy everyone is, for making time from your schedules to be here for an important conversation in the beginning of a series and an initiative for, to discuss the future economic vision and framework for our country. For over 119 years, the Canadian Club has been proud to provide Canadians with this closely guarded, non-partisan forum to bring together people for the free and open exchange of ideas on the issues that matter to us most. Through our programs and events, including our youth and young leaders programs, our diversity partnerships, our joint events, and our media and social media opportunities, we have been able to offer you access over decades to dynamic political, business, and social figures, both from here and abroad. And before I formally introduce today's speakers and our program, I would like you to please provide me a small indulgence to tell you a little bit about our, a couple of exciting upcoming events. On February 17th, that's tomorrow, Jean-Pierre Blais, Chairman of the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, will tell us about the future of TV news in this era of dynamic change and disruption. And on February 29th, a stellar, stellar, stellar panel of the heads of some of our largest pension plans, including Mark Wiseman, the leader of uh, CPPIB, Michael Latimer, who heads OMERS, and Ron Mock of Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, will come and share their thoughts on the current global economy, the investment climate, and other issues that are important to them in their day-to-day -day jobs. To order more tickets or learn more about our events, please look us up on our website at canadianclub.org. And you can also join the conversation, conversation via Twitter on CDNCLBTO. I would like to take a moment also to express a special thanks and gratitude to our sponsors who have made this event and this series a reality. Firstly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Gluskin Chef and the City of Toronto for their enormous support for this event, the Canada at 150 series. Thank you. And also our event sponsor today, Bloomberg TV Canada, our media partner, The Walrus, and of course our official airline sponsor, Air Canada. Thank you as well. And I'm most happy to be able to take a moment to recognize several groups of youth and young leaders who are with us today, and they include the following. Havergal College, sponsored by Borealis Infrastructure. The York School, sponsored by Diamante Development. Sir Wilfrid Laurier and the Native Learning Centre, sponsored by the CSL Group, Inc. And U of T's Master of Public Policy program, sponsored by the Canadian Credit Union Association. May I ask all these students and young leaders to, to stand, please, and just to take a moment to recognize the future uh, generation of our country and welcome them. A program like this is really geared towards that next generation, so we're happy to have them here today, and we look forward to having the benefit of their ideas. Now, before I take a, before I introduce, I formally introduce our panel, I would like to take a moment to tell you a little bit about this unique series and this unique program.
the Canada at 150 series that the Canadian Club is proud to be launching today. And this series is really to explore what the future economic vision of Canada should be for the benefit of us all. And a little bit of history of how this started, it started, like many things in this country, at a hockey game. I was with my friend, Joe Manguette, who's now at AlignVest, but spent many years running Boston Consulting Group in Canada. And as we were watching the Leafs get beat, unfortunately, and thinking about what else was missing around us, other than, of course, a Stanley Cup, we thought about how we could work together with all these great groups, these great people across this country, to think about how we're going to be as prosperous at 200 as we, as we are on the eve of 150. Soon after that, we thought we may need some real facts and some analysis to back up what we're doing or the conversations what we're going to have. And we reached out to Dr. Walid Hijazi at the Rotman School, and with the support of him and the team and the leadership at Rotman, we were able to get their backing. And then we were lucky enough to be able to reach out to our friend and Canadian club alum, Amanda Lang, to, ju to jump on board on this initiative and help this become the event that we see today. And then finally, and not least, the great staff and people at the Canadian Club who really have made this event possible today so we could all benefit from what we're about to hear and this initiative. So thank you to you all. Now, once we put all that together, we started to focus in on why are we really doing this? What is it that's so important to all of us as Canadians that requires bringing these great people together and bringing you all out here this afternoon, you interested Canadians who want to think about collectively the future of our country? So there were two core questions that we thought are going to animate this discussion and anxieties that we all feel. And number one is almost a palatable, palatable, a palatable, I'm not going to be able to see that, palpable. A palpable anxiety. I need some water, by the way, but that's all right. I toasted the country and they took my water away. About how we're going to have a, gro a growing and strong economy for the benefit of ourselves and our children in the years to come. And the second core question was, how are we going to ensure that this country is as relevant at 200 again as it is on the eve of its 150th birthday? This was something that we have seen across the country that is of great concern to us all. And then we needed to think about a clear framework, a narrative. Why and how can we approach this problem in a way that's simple and also self-reliant? And we thought of four basic factors, things that are within our control that we can put to work. They were number one, how do you create wealth on a national basis? You need people, and that means assessing that in its totality. Do you have educated people, healthy people, trained people? Do you have enough people to create a certain amount of wealth to maintain a way of life? The second thing people need are tools. They need the tools to be productive. And that includes infrastructure and also thinking about it in its 21st century form. How do people in the 21st century get the right tools to be the most productive? And the third thing is once you have a people and tools, you need ingredients to mix into that pot to be able to create those valuable goods and services that you can ultimately put out to the market. And that includes taking a close look at our resources. How do we use them most efficiently? When we extract them, what's the impact on our environment so that we make sure we have a sustainable and pleasant society to live in as we produce all of these goods and services? And then once you've done all of that, what do you need at the end of that line? You need a customer. You need somebody to sell those goods and services to to give you money so that you can now fund all of those great things that you have and that we benefit from in this nation, and or you're going to need access to capital, low-cost capital, so that people can help fund all of those great ideas that you come up with. And then the issue became, well, then what do you do with all of that? How do you make it a reality? So this small, modest initiative at the Canadian Club of Toronto is meant to be a little bit of a spark. And then we layer on top of that some robust economic analysis starting with our friends at Rotman, with Walid Hijazi and his team, and to start to put some real facts and figures, and explore specific questions like, if we had $100 of private and public money for the next 50 years to invest, how would we invest that? Would we put $12 in infrastructure, $13 in education, to try to get some specificity for this 21st century vision? 
and then think about and look back over time in geography what has worked in the world so that we have some sense, some benchmarks of where people's money was well spent. And then to layer on top of that some policy analysis, which we're benefiting from, from the Monk School under the leadership of Stephen Toop, and they're going to be able to contribute, and hopefully others across the country as well. And then, of course, real leadership, practical experience, people that have done this before and pulled the levers of power, which is exemplified in the panel that we have today. And then finally, to try to work together and use this as a spark, as an initiative, to bring in a lot of great people in their initiatives. To develop this vision, a list of priorities, framework that we all can buy into, where all Canadians give a little and get a lot, and to do something together that we could never do alone, that sets a path for us, again, to remain as healthy and strong at 200 as we are on the eve of the 100, our 150th birthday. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the Canada 150 initiative, and I now call on Amanda Lang to come up, and, uh, and, and we will start to uh, commence our discussion uh, to launch this program. Please. So today, by way of brief introduction, and you often say people don't need an introduction, and every once in a while it's absolutely true. Please have this. Because the people here are known to us all, and they have done great things for our country. And the first is the Right Honorable Paul Martin. Who was, the two, who was also the 2014 recipient of the club's Lifetime Achievement Award and, of course, Canada's 21st Prime Minister and a leader who continues to make an impact. Also, one of the leading forces behind the creation of the G20 and transformed Canada's what I call capital structure at the time of his service as Finnish Minister of Finance and knows what levers to pull and what the implications of pulling those levers at all are. Next, David Rosenberg is the chief economist and strategist for the independent wealth management firm of Gluskin Chef. Previously served as chief economist for Merrill Lynch in New York, as well as Merrill Lynch Canada, and provides practical advice and insight to us all on a daily basis, and literally tens of millions of dollars are invested on the basis of his real work. Next, the Honorable Michael Wilson also proudly an alumni of the Canadian Club of Toronto as a former director, and also received the club's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2013. A remarkably accomplished politician, businessman, and community leader. And also was in the seat of power to oversee one of the biggest transformations in modern economic Canadian history with his work on free trade, which really set a path for economic development for almost a generation. And of course, as I've already uh, introduced, moderating this panel, Amanda Lang, of course, considered one of the leading analysts and voices and authors on business issues and has looked at these issues from almost every perspective, top and bottom and side to side. And last fall, after six years at the CBC, as its senior business correspondent, she joined Bloomberg TV Canada as a producer and host, soon to be host, next week is the first show of Bloomberg North, we are deeply honored, deeply delighted, and incredibly privileged to have this panel with us today to launch our Canada at 150 initiative. Thank you very much. This podium is now yours. Wow. Thank you, Danny, um, and thank you all for being here. I just want to echo Danny's remarks in that this is, the, this is a launch. This is the beginning of a conversation that we hope, um, that the club hopes goes on, but it's a, it's a big tent conversation. We have the expertise of graduate students from the University of Toronto at the Rotman School and the Monk School, and there will be robust modeling around ideas that come out, but the point is to involve as many Canadians uh, as want to be involved. Uh, to that end, there will be a hashtag, uh, for those of you who know what that is, uh, if you have ideas, if you have uh, policy thoughts, Paul has no idea. I think it's a, a number <laughs> sign. Uh, please do, this is the beginning of something. And one of the benefits we have, we've talked about this, is uh, there's a sense of urgency. We have a great nation, uh, but we are at a moment when there is a sense we need to, we need to get moving and figure things out. Um, I want to start, before I, I turn it over, each of these gentlemen is going to say a few words and then we're going to have a conversation. I need to address the elephant in the room of this panel um, and its homogeneity, homogeneity uh, which is that they're all U of T grads. <laughs> it wasn't intentional, uh, but there it is. So, uh, but we are, 
blessed to have this kind of expertise and de depth of experience and leadership in the world. Um, it's not often that you get people with so many honorifics, you're not sure which one applies to them. Uh, it's easier for the Prime Minister than the Ambassador. I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to start with you, David, if I may, to set the stage. We don't want to look back. Many of us are familiar with the issues, but in terms of the, the economic situation as it stands today, the crisis that Canada confronts or the reality we confront, and the elements of that that are important as we look forward, things that we need to be looking at in order to change. What would you put on that list? Well, you know, I, I would just say in, in, in reference uh, to your question about there being a crisis, it's interesting because if you speak to most people about um, what happened in Canada in the past year, uh, most people talk about this cataclysmic uh, plunge in energy and the lack of pipeline expansion. But in reality, the story beneath the veneer is that energy is 10% of the economy. And the problem really is the other 90% of the economy hasn't grown in the past 12 months. And you know, the view at almost every level, and I stand guilty as charged on this, but so do a lot of people, uh, was that, you know, going from a 90, 95 cent dollar down to an 80 cent dollar was going to revitalize the manufacturing sector to a point that it would provide uh, at least an antidote to the implosion in the energy capital stock. And of course, what happened was that it wasn't an 80 cent dollar that did it. Ultimately, it was a sub 70 cent dollar that did it. So as an economist, and you know, as Rahm Emanuel told Barack Obama, don't waste a good crisis, is that it's not even so much the energy story. We got exposed, really, um, standing naked on shore as lacking internal competitiveness. I mean, that's the bitter truth is that uh, we don't have the competitiveness that we thought we would have had an 80-cent dollar, and that's why we had to take this monumental national pay cut, really, when you think about it, uh, to buy our market share. So I'm the economist out of this group, and I suppose if you ask me what are the three things that's most important, it's really productivity, productivity, and productivity, because ultimately that is what's going to create uh, sustainable economic growth. So we look at the, I don't mean to sound like a professor, but you look at the inputs to the supply side of the economy, since I was schooled at the University of Toronto by Jack Carr, and we look at the supply side, and it's capital and it's labor, and then how they commingle, what you call basically multi-factor productivity, uh, which sadly in Canada has not grown, not just in 5, 10, but not in 15 years. So uh, we have a situation, I think, when we take a look, say, at the, at the labor side, uh, where I think most fundamentally uh, we have some serious demographic challenges. Uh, you know, when Michael Wilson was finance minister, not as if he didn't have his challenges, but he was blessed at least with the working age population in this country that was running at 1.5% at an annual rate. Paul Martin in the mid-90s has growth in the working age population of roughly 1%. And of course, I look at these numbers because I'm an economist, but we're down to 0.4% on the growth in working age population. And part of that is the demographics. We're all getting older. The median age of the population is over 40. In 1970, it was 26. Over 20% of the population is over the age of 65. That's going to pose its own challenges across many fronts. When these two gentlemen were finance minister, it was 10% share, and that number is growing one percentage point per year. So we're getting older. You talked about diversity. And it leads me to immigration. And not just about the numbers themselves, although I'm interested looking at the numbers that, although we consider ourselves to be an open country, and immigration has proven to be cross-sectionally across most countries around the world over time to be a great source of economic growth, well, I got news for you all that our immigration numbers have actually leveled off. They're not making new highs anymore. And then it's a question as to what sort of immigrants are we bringing in. Because as an economist in the markets, the truth's always in the price. And when you take a look at wage rates among immigrants today and how long it's taken them to play catch-up to the national average, the studies show it's taking longer and longer and longer. So what does that say about how we're integrating them, about literacy, about education, about skills? Uh, so that's something I think that we have to take a look at is immigration and also are we monitoring it quickly enough because traditionally, historically, uh, that has been a great source of productivity growth 
and national economic growth. You know, the other thing I would say, and it comes down to a whole bunch of other things, which also is about our incentive system, our tax system, entrepreneurial. Why is it that we are losing, emigration-wise, not immigration, 60,000 people per year? Is anybody in the government or anywhere monitoring who are these 60,000 people every year moving away? Are they all snowbirds going to Florida? I don't think so. But that's something else that could be draining our productivity. Uh, so I'm taking a look at the labor side through immigration. Uh, and of course, you know, these two gentlemen are more well-versed on education than certainly I am. But I, I do take a look at the statistics showing, and I was amazed to see this, that we're churning out record levels of graduates in the humanities and the arts. And I come from a whole family of pedagogues, so I'm sensitive to that. But when you take a look at engineering, math, sciences, computer science, it's at the bottom. And so when you look at employment placement rates, they're the lowest in the areas where we're churning out the greatest number of graduates, and they're the highest in the areas where we're churning out the lowest number of graduates. So I actually think it's a travesty, and this might be more, I think, at the provincial level, because we're talking more federal, but provinces have the jurisdiction uh, over education, uh, as to how it could possibly be that we have a 7.2% unemployment rate in this country, 13% youth unemployment rate. When you count in the underemployment to the unemployment, it's 2.5 million. How could, therefore, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business in their last survey show that uh, 30% of them say that skill shortages uh, are their greatest impediment to economic growth. So there's the immigration, how we can solve this, uh, but also what can we do to help uh, solve this mismatch between skills? And that could be one of the reasons why we're losing 60,000 people per year to other countries, I think principally to the U.S., which has a different tax system than we do. I'll just finish off by saying, look, I mentioned labor, mentioned capital, and... Uh, I'm stunned to see that in the past decade, growth in the private sector capital stock in this country has come to a standstill. I'm amazed today still to see that notwithstanding the inroads we made in the Kitchener-Waterloo corridor, that we import 75% of our capital needs. Uh, and so once again, and, and certainly a 70 cent dollar is not gonna help that, but once again, you go to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, they're the ones that create the prosperity and the growth and the jobs in this country. And uh, one in five say that access to capital is a primary impediment to growth. Bring it all together to multi-factor productivity, how they commingle. And yet again, uh, the survey says uh, that 60% of small businesses uh, believe that government regulation and taxation uh, our principal impediments, and there's nothing that comes close to that. So I would say that, you know, I guess, you know, every maybe 20 years we sit around talking about a crisis in Canada. Uh, you know, Michael Wilson came in uh, in a period where we had a recession three years, three times eight years apart. Uh, Paul Martin comes in uh, during a fiscal crisis. We know how to solve crises. I'm glad he actually used that because we have a bit of a crisis going on. It's a crisis really in, uh, in entrepreneurialism. Uh, in skills mismatch and in immigration, but uh, there's no question that we could solve them. Well, that's, that's a wonderful place to, to go to because we'll come back to some of those themes. Um, Michael, you've been part uh, both obviously on the, the policy generation side, but also on the thinking side and report generation side uh, of the, of the t people who have come up with solutions to problems. When you look at this from where you sit now uh, as something that has to happen, as, as a series of problems we have to solve, What's on your list of most important? Where do we start? <clears throat> well, there's three things I want to talk about today, Amanda. But before I do that, let me just make the point that uh, there has been study after study after study after study over the, the last number of years. And uh, not, this is not a knock on the economists in this room. But um, uh, the, the studies pretty much always uh, stay at the 38,000-foot level. And uh, I saw an article in the paper, I won't mention names here, but uh, two eminent former public servants, uh, they came up with four pillars of a growth strategy. And I, this caught my eye and I looked at it more carefully and it was the same four pillars that I had put in my growth strategy when the Mulroney government came into power 
1984. So I congratulate the Canadian Club for taking on this project, but I really encourage you to get down from that 38,000 foot level to what's going on on the ground and where we can really make a difference because that's what the focus has got to be to, to make that difference. The three areas I'm going to talk about are innovation, uh, infrastructure, and I'm not going to talk about infrastructure in the normal way you might be thinking, uh, and uh, an international observation. Uh, on uh, innovation, one of the real advantages that we have is a very concentrated financial system in this country. Uh, the Monk School and um, uh, Rotman, I think we're part of this as well, worked with the Toronto Financial Services Alliance to come up with uh, a study that looked at ways that we could develop a stronger fintech community in this country. And one of the things that they did say in that study was, we've got to see where the banks and the, the pension funds and the life companies uh, can take greater advantage of the skills that we have rather than immediately look outside of Canada and see where the, uh, the expertise here. If we can develop that partnership, we are going to develop the, the skills here in Canada, keep those head offices in Canada, and keep the intellectual property in Canada. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples. There are two uh, hotspots today. One is uh, uh, the blockchain technology that was developed for Bitcoin, but now has been uh, uh, expanded in a significant way. And the other is cybersecurity. These are two areas that uh, make some sense for the banks to come together on. Uh, to have block tech, uh, the blockchain technology really working, you have to have a group of like-minded uh, financial institutions, banks, uh, to be able to uh, see this uh, take off. This is happening in other parts of the world. I'm not sure, I, I'm sure the banks are thinking about the blockchain technology. I haven't heard that they're thinking of doing it in a way that takes advantage of some of those fintech skills that are here in the Toronto area uh, to uh, right on our doorstep to uh, develop that in Canada and not just for banking but um, I'm told that it makes sense for in some of the healthcare uh, sectors uh, and also um, uh, in real estate. Uh, so that is one area. The other area is uh, cyber security. Uh, we're all as strong in uh, cybersecurity as the weakest link. So there's a real incentive, a real need uh, for the banks uh, to get together and make sure that they're all at the same level of security for their organizations in order to protect the, uh, the assets and the information that, uh, that are there uh, with their clients. The, um, uh, Dan Bresnitz, uh, who's at the Monk School, has, uh, you may have read some of his stuff in the, uh, in the Globe and Mail. Uh, he says that it's really important that we ask the right questions. And this is where a dialogue becomes very important. No one has all the answers. And uh, even some of those answers require quite a strong ongoing dialogue to find out what works and what doesn't work. We've used tax incentives in this country. Paul's used those. I've used them. In Israel, where Dan is from, he worked in the office of the chief scientist. Uh, they have moved away from tax incentives into direct project-related opportunities uh, in order to develop a technology and uh, commercialize that technology in a way that um, uh, uh, identifies the roadblocks to success and does so in a way that uh, uh, can contribute to the growth of the, uh, uh, the opportunity in Canada. Now we have a number of good startups in Canada. Startups doesn't seem to be our problem. A little bit of a, an advertisement here. The University of Toronto is the leader in startups. Are you ready? In North America of all the universities in North America. Our challenge is to move those startups to the next level, uh, encourage them to, uh, to uh, commercialize the project and give them the capacity to be able to do that. We have an organization um, in Toronto called 111. Um, 111 is a, a product, uh, Omers is uh, one of the key backers. And what they do is try to identify those uh, uh, those uh, startups, and not just give them money, but give them money. 
and then ask that, uh, help them get the right management skills, the, the, uh, uh, the right networks, uh, help them in developing that network and helping them develop their company to a point where we can keep that company in Canada with the head office and the intellectual property here in this, uh, uh, in this country. Uh, one of the things you've heard of uh, in many cases is clusters. Uh, we've got uh, good clusters uh, in Canada. Uh, again, I'm speaking from uh, knowledge of what's going on at the University of Toronto. Uh, the University of Toronto is the number three biomedical cluster in North America. And a number of those startups that have moved the University of Toronto into that uh, leading level in North America is in that biomedical sector. Uh, so it's, again, trying to take the companies in that uh, sector and move them uh, into that next level. Uh, let me move from there uh, uh, to infrastructure. And I'm not going to, as I said earlier, I'm not going to talk about bridges and roads, etc. But one of the key elements of our infrastructure in this country has got to be our education system. And I've been uh, talking to uh, my, um, uh, my daughter and, uh, about uh, the education that uh, uh, her little grandson, who's 11 years old, the little rascal beats me with the, the games that he plays all the time on his tablet. And the point that um, I uh, realized in talking to her is we could take the skills that these younger people are developing at a very early age and take them the next level so that that toy becomes a tool and they understand it uh, as a tool. Uh, they can uh, uh, give them skills in developing the coding the, uh, uh, for, um, uh, for the microprocessors, but also how they use that. Uh, one of the examples was given to me was uh, have people design something, a piece of furniture, and then have it played back to them in 3D printing so they can improve the original design they have to something that uh, they're more comfortable with. Uh, take them at a very early age to help them understand how they can use that tablet to access in information on the website, on websites uh, through the internet. Now, we in this room all do that, but if we can integrate the thinking uh, with our kids at that age, at young age, we're going to be just that much faster uh, on the, uh, the road to success in, in using uh, these skills. Final point is the international one. We have um, in the NAFTA countries uh, a, a strength that uh, very few other countries have. Um, we have the, uh, David talked about our, uh, our de demographic challenge. If you put the uh, populations of the United States, Mexico, and Canada together, you get a very uniform uh, population profile. That's a real strength for us. Uh, the private sector is using the NAFTA supply chain to take advantage of these three economies and the skills that they can draw out and the, ca the capabilities that they can draw out of the three individual countries. What I don't think has been done nearly as well as could be is uh, uh, from the government level. The three governments have taken a much more passive approach at identifying how we can work together as three countries. Now, one of the things that uh, was quite encouraging to me last week, there is an announcement by the en environment ministers of the three countries that they are going to work together and develop a tri-country environmental uh, initiative that brings the three of us together. Some great strengths if we can a are able to do that. But why stop at the environment? Why not energy? Very closely related. Why not transportation? Why not regulation? To harmonize the, relation, uh, the, the regulations uh, among the three countries. This has been done in Europe. We're all aware of that. And how many countries do they have, Paul? Is it 24, 30? Anyway, they've got many, many more countries to bring to the table and uh, uh, coordinate in something like this than we have with three countries. Um, so let's try and work together to take advantage of this very powerful economic unit of those three countries and uh, take advantage of them and uh, work more closely together. 
So, Amanda, let me stop there. Okay. Um, thank you very much. And, Paul, for your opening remarks, I know you've got thoughts on all of this, um, and we want to get into a conversation, but you also have some thoughts about uh, a weakness and opportunity for this country that I think you want to share. Well, I think what I'd like to do, Amanda, I think that picking, I'd like to pick up, really, and, uh, where David and, and where Michael left off. Um, you know, David talked about education, talked about labor. Michael went innovation and, and, um, uh, and, and innovation and education. And I think that it, it, it's, I think it's quite an interesting phenomenon. The three of us actually agree. Um, <laughs> I think it's a miracle. <laughs> the, um, the, the, but this is, let me, I think that the one issue that perhaps has not been raised and I think is one of the most important in terms of Canada facing up to what kind of a world we're going to be in 50 years from now or 30 years from now or even 10 years from now. Understand, it is a world that is going through probably an industrial revolution, the likes of which we have not seen since the history books, as job after job is just simply disappearing. And the fact is that they're disappearing, and we didn't even know it five years ago. I mean, the predictability capacity in this area is phenomenal, and it's only going to continue. I think our single biggest problem as a country in terms of what kind of an economy we want to develop is we just don't have enough people. We are a country of 34 million people and we are competing with countries of literally hundreds of millions of people. And what does that mean? Well, the fact of the matter is David talked about the kind of economy we're going to have. Michael used the, talked about startups. Well, the fact of the matter is that if you're going to do a startup in Canada and you're competing with startups in the United States or China, as an example, you're competing with countries that have a massive population platform on which to do that startup. So what it means is that you can learn at home, you can make go through your problems at home, you can raise the money at home without having to face the fears of foreign competition. And then once you're ready to face the, court, the foreign competition, the odds are that you're going to be every bit as big as, as, as they will be. Uh, so in Canada, you start this and you're a smaller, you're a smaller startup because of that smaller uh, 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 national base. And then when you're ready to start to grow, all of a sudden you find yourself not just facing one, but you find yourself fame, uh, facing foreign clusters who are bigger than you and it's going to come down who's going to take over who. And let me tell you, in that kind of world, uh, you know, world of cannibals, I'm, there's a great theory that we're the ones that are going to get eaten. So the, the issue is you need a population base that is big enough that when you're involved in startups, not the traditional businesses that we all know, but the kind of businesses that are going to be very much uh, uh, the kinds of businesses that the next world, the next economy is going to be facing, you, our population base is going to be too small to do it, to handle it. Therefore, what do we do? Well, I think I'll give you three suggestions as I would, when I would see it, how do you face up to this, all of which leading, of course, to the fact that we have to get a much larger population. The first is that the three orders of government have got to work together. It is absolutely nonsensical that the governments can stand there at idle observers of the passing parade when governments are dealing with other areas. There, we, I understand the Constitution, but there are no areas in which government has to work that any government can, can succeed in doing it alone. There has to, the fact of the matter is, in terms of the economy, you know, Canada does not compete with China. Toronto competes with Shanghai. And as soon as we realize that, we'll understand that there is no way that Ottawa can stay out of that, nor can Queen's Park, but vice versa. The fact is that education is a, is a, is a provincial responsibility, but if Ottawa stays out of, of, of provincial education, what it's going to end up doing is turning its back on one of its principal responsibilities, which are Aboriginal Canada. So this kind of thing is going to happen all the time. Second thing we've got to understand <coughs> is that the basis of the new economy, one way or another, is discovery research. It is basic research. It is knowledge for knowledge's sake. Scientists are going to go wherever, and you wrote about that, they are going to go wherever their curiosity takes them, and they must be allowed to do that. At the same time, um, that we have to look to Canada's natural advantages. One of our natural advantages is our health care system. Our health care system delivers great health. That's what wonderful for that. But it's also a phenomenal network. And it's a network that we should be taking, uh, that we should be taking advantage of. Michael made some references to, to, to some of this. But the fact of the matter is, stem cells research started in Canada. 
stem cells research should be an area we are dominating the world at the present time, and we are nowhere in terms of stem cell research compared to where we should be. And so I think the government, scientists should be able to do what they want to do, but at the same time, government should say in the pursuit of economic growth that there are areas where we are going to, we are going to encourage that growth, and I think that the healthcare system, as a, a, as a commercial operation, not simply in terms of giving us good health, but the build, building of another, the next economy. The, the third and the last area that I would raise, has again been raised by both David and, and Michael, is, um, uh, is education. The, if we're going to have the kind of population base that we want to have, then clearly there are two areas that we've got to look. One is to immigration, and one, the second, is to the indigenous people of, of, of this country. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that, that you know, the, the fact is that there are now, uh, the exact statistics are there are more, now more people in Canada over the age of 65 than there are under the age of 15. These two guys are aging. Canada, and uh, <laughs> and so so you, you know the, the fact the fact is that the change is not going to come back come from the simply the existing Canadian population. It's going to be those who are going to come in here. In terms of immigrants, the, the the shift from coming from a different country to this country is huge. Um, the, the debate, in my opinion, in this in, in Canada should not have been. Uh, how few immigrant, how few refugees you were going to bring in? It should be, it should have been how many? Because we need them, and we bring in to bring their families, and we need them to bring their their children, and then we need to take those kids and integrate them into our public school systems, so that in fact, whether it's learning the language, whether it's learning the history, whether it's learning the way that we look at things, that those kids can come in and be and really, essentially, get as good a start as they as they as they possibly can. And then the second, and this is, forgive me for what I'm spending my time on, but Sir Wilfrid Laurier School was introduced to you earlier in the Native Learning Center, which you sit down and you talk to these students. There is, culture is not simply that which you see in tourist handbooks. Culture is a way of looking at math. Culture is a way of looking at science. Culture is a way of understanding what it's all about. All of us have learned that you segment science into all of its various different characteristics. Well, if you want to know the way the First Nations look at science, go talk to a, to a quantum physicist who basically looks at it as a sum of its whole. But our education system does not teach that, does not reflect that, and does not give these kids a chance, chance to do it. At the same time, the fact is, if you go to an on-reserve school, you are going to receive anywhere from 30 to 40 percent less per capita than any kid going to a public school 10 kilometers away. Are we nuts? This is the youngest, the fastest growing segment of our population in a country where we all admit that we don't have enough people if we're going to be able to have a population that can innovate and we're going to underfund their education. We're not going to give them a chance to get a decent grade school and high school education. The problem doesn't exist within our universities. Our universities have made tremendous progress uh, over the last 20 years. Our, the problem exists the day that child goes into kindergarten. And I think that, you know, and you both have talked about implementing change and how we're going to make it happen. Well, that's where to do it. That's where to do it. It's the day that the young immigrant kid goes to grade school. It's the day that the First Nations child, whether or Métis or Inuit, the day they go to a school on or off reserve, that we have an education system that will assure them that when they graduate from high school, they will have a high school education as good as anybody else. And I'll tell you, if we do that, given that this is the youngest growing fastest growing segment of our population. If we handle immigration in the way that we're talking about, we can handle this population area. And we do that. And I gotta tell you, I don't think anybody in the world is gonna to touch us. I wanna I wanna pick up on the productivity question that David raised and I wanna ask you specifically, and mindful of time, it's the responsibility and the curse of the journalist to simplify. But these are this is the starting point of a conversation that will continue and be robust. So I don't mean to to, to whittle this down. We know we have a productivity problem and we know it's costing us a great deal in, in our quality of life and that it's uh, it's making us poorer. 
And we also know, I think we can agree, that innovation is the solution to the productivity problem. If we know we want innovation, Michael, what, I want all of you to answer this, but, but briefly. <laughs> what is the policy or set of policies or our lamppost to look under to get innovation? Where do we start? We know we want it. We, while we have innovation in this country, it's how we can get more innovation. I mentioned the 111 example. Uh, I think that we should probably have, I say this to Mark Weissman uh, in a very gentle way, why doesn't the kind of pension plan or teachers or the uh, case to the poll, why don't they have the same type of uh, uh, organization that 111 has? That, I think, is an extraordinarily important one to get us from that startup level, as I said earlier, to where yep. those companies become uh, a, a, a self-reliant, self-sufficient So targeted programs that support startups through funding. To take them to that next level. That's one area. The other is um, uh, I think we've got to teach innovation thinking because I think it is as much an attitude as it is a capacity to develop an idea. And I think we've got to start that in, in uh, uh, at least secondary school, uh, but also throughout our universities. Uh, the University of Toronto has five centers. And one of the interesting things to me is there, there's a big hole in the ground up there now for the engineering center for uh, innovation and entrepreneurship. And I said to the dean, where did the push come from uh, to get this center off the ground? Was it you, the dean? She said, no. Was it the faculty? She said, no. It was the students. The students were the driver because they understood the importance of this. And um, I'll say this very quickly. Uh, the student, the graduating class last year pledged a million dollars of their money, even though they've got uh, student debts and so on, a uh, million dollars of their money to support the building of this new uh, center when they won't have the chance themselves to be in that center as students. Clear message, they saw the importance of this and were ready to put their own money to support it. So it's got to be done at an early stage to get people understanding what innovation if you, means. If you keep talking at U of T, I'm going to suggest they sponsor the lunch ad hoc. <laughs> well, you just put a U over the Toronto there. You know? <laughs> uh, David, very specifically, policies that would drive innovation? Well, look, look? I'll, what else? I don't know if I have the actual policy prescription, but let's just identify the impediments to growth. And then let our decision makers who got elected uh, decide uh, how we're going to bridge the gap. Small business, they're the generators of what you want to call entrepreneurialism, you want to call innovation. Uh, most of what you're going to learn is going to be on the job, not, not what you learn at school. Okay? We have a problem with a skills mismatch at an, at, at a, at a annoyingly high level. Small business is telling you that. Uh, we have a problem with access and cost of technology. I pose the question again, why do we import three-quarters of our technology and now it's prohibitively expensive with a 70-cent dollar? Uh, and then thirdly, uh, we have something that we didn't talk about, which is a huge impediment uh, to uh, productivity and to the labor markets clearing. And I think it's something that Paul Martin brought up, which is... Um, the fact that we have three levels of government with uh, different levels of power uh, but aren't coordinated. So uh, most studies, I think C.D. Howe Institute did a report showing that interprovincial regulatory barriers cost the national economy almost $50 billion a year in lost output. So really, my question is, well, what are we going to do about that? We've identified really what the problems are. I think that, you know, it comes down to the incentive system and the tax system. And uh, I don't think that coming into Ottawa and raising top marginal tax rates or at, at the provincial level raising top marginal tax rates uh, where you're actually providing disincentives for theoretically the most productive parts of the economy is actually the way you want to go. I'm, I'm sitting with these two gentlemen here, uh, brought in tax reform in the mid-1980s, brought in tax reform in the mid-1990s. It's been 20 years. 
But we know that if we actually embark on really smart tax from over beyond, say, immigration, uh, what that can do to lift the supply side of the economy is if we didn't see that. And that's the big debate in the United States post the election. Last time the U.S. had tax reform of any magnitude was in 1986. And look what that did to the U.S. economy in that period. Paul? I think the problem is not startup financing. I think it's the seven level, second level. I think it is. I've got. I've done this thing. I've discovered whatever I'm doing. I've got it's going on. I've got my friends, but I can't get another. I can't get another penny. And I think that there's got to be something to do with to do about that. Whether it is um, having spent an awful long time saying to the Canadian pension plan that we're not going to interfere with what you're doing. I'm not going to interfere with what you're doing. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't even if I could, and I can't. Um, but uh, the, the fact is that I think that there's a lot of expertise in our major pension funds, and I think there ought to be some way in which that, can, that expertise can be brought to bear as to how you want to do uh, second-level financing. The second thing is, really, and this is an idea that came from Alan Bernstein, who, as some of you know, some of you know him, I'm sure, the, who's the, the head of the Stem Cells Foundation. And what he really was talking about is how they were going to, how stem cells research would be done, but how they could bring in the capacity of actually entrepreneurs in somewhere in, from the beginning so that they had an understanding of the research as it developed and that they would try to perform that kind of, perform that kind of marriage. I'm not sure in my own mind I would know how to do it, but if that can be done, then I think that in terms of a wide range of, uh, of, uh, of uh, discovery research that is done, it would very quickly lead to its application. Let me just pick up on that point, if I could, Amanda. We've got a number of big, big pharma companies in this country. They take uh, broad advantage of the healthcare system, uh, and uh, uh, in the last number of years, they have reduced the amount of of research that they are doing in the country. And I think this is where, if the provinces, with the leadership of the federal government, uh, could come together to say, as part of the deal of us buying your pharmaceuticals, you have got to get back into the research and support some of these startups. As I said, uh, uh, I won't say the university, but uh, the university that has the third largest uh, biomedical cluster in, uh, in the country, yeah. they got the capacity there to do it. And in one of the areas, Paul, in another area, genetics is a terrific advantage point for us in this country, uh, and uh, trying to marry the genetics with the farmers is another way of uh, taking advantage of we, what we have here. We have seen um, a lot of original research uh, startups. These are not places that, that Canada lacks. One question, and it's a big question, and this is the kind of thing that could be a big conversation, and I think it's one we have to have. So don't be long with it, because we're not, there's no hope of solving it. And you may just say, I'm wrong, which would be really quick. Uh, I have wondered whether there's a cultural issue or impediment in Canada that keeps us from being hungrier or more competitive, uh, tougher. We are very nice, and good enough is often good enough for our businesses. Um, any, anybody see that? And if so, I mean, the, you, we can't possibly answer the question what we do about it, but do you agree that may be an issue we need to look at? I, I think that there is an element, I, I won't repeat what I said earlier, but getting people thinking in, uh, just in their own internal culture as to the importance of innovation at yeah. an early stage, I think is one area. Um, I, the, the U.S. is its a good news, bad news story. It's a good news story because it's a wonderful country to have on our border, the powerful economy, et cetera, et cetera, and a nice place to go last weekend. <laughs> so, um, but it's a bad news story in that it is a real draw for people who have got an idea that they see can be capitalized on down there. That's why I say uh, the 111s of this world are extraordinarily important because I've talked to some of these people. They don't want to go to the U.S. Yep. to uh, to commercialize the product if they could do it here, and that's what I think we should try and address. I, I don't think you're right. Um, I think that every time, I mean, we saw those stories that came out about a month ago about all those kids and people people in Waterloo who were going down. Every time I hear Microsoft say that 
their famous, their most favorite place to recruit is Canada. It drives me nuts. And uh, I think that I think the problem is that we're not providing. I, I guess we're, we're not providing those people who are leaving with the kind of opportunity. And I think that goes back to the fact that we've got the startups and we're just not building them into in, into big enough entities. And I think that that's really where the focus has to be. But we have the market there. The market yeah. is there with NAFTA. So we have the capacity to reach into a very broad market. It's, it's If we can keep these head offices here, the intellectual property here, the people here, by giving them the supports they need to build it. But it's a chicken and the egg. Yeah. But sometimes Dave, do you have a thought? Is there a cultural issue to address? Well, I, I think that historically there's there has been a cultural issue, and, and, and uh, there's two parts to it. Um, you know, historically we were uh, a very large exporting nation, and we had the benefit uh, since the Second World War, outside of the periodic recession, which were short and brief affairs of, of writing off of really what was uh, a tremendous uh, economic growth. Uh, that has now come to an end uh, over the course of the past several years. And uh, these other countries that we trade with, including the U.S., have structural issues uh, they have to, that they have to get through. So I think that that's part of it, uh, which is what I said before. What can we do autonomously? When I talked about importing technology, what can we do internally? The internal sources of demand, what can we do? We rely so much on our trading partners to provide our growth over the decades. And then on top of that, uh, our, quotes endowment, because we were blessed with these natural resources. And now that story's been blown out of the water, and uh, commodities are really probably in a long-term secular bear market. So we relied on these other things that really were beyond our control, and we became complacent. Um, so this is actually, as I said before, you know, when Rahm Emanuel told Barack Obama, don't waste a crisis, this is actually... Crisis breeds opportunity, but I do get a sense that for decades uh, we've rested on our laurels, uh, and uh, you know it doesn't mean that it's going to be that way going forward. I actually share what Paul Martin had to say about when you think about the world right now, so unstable. You think of these porous borders in Europe, and you think about Canada in so many ways. Um, where I mean, it's so great. Uh, we have this long border with the United States. I mean, really, who wouldn't want that? Uh, we don't have our border with Mexico. They do. We've got a border with the U.S. And then we have two oceans. And then the next closest country to us is Greenland. And I don't think they pose a threat. So uh, I think that, you know, when you think about uh, Canada as a draw, okay, and not just for refugees, which is humanitarian, but for economic growth reasons, and why is it that our levels of immigration have topped out? There's no reason for that to happen, especially given... The fact that um, we are getting older uh, and that we can use that population growth uh, from the rest of the world. So I think that's got to be a big part of the strategy is uh, immigration. So we're, we're close to time. I'm going to finish with one last thought um, from each of you on something that will be a recurring theme. And to understand uh, how this will work, this is the first of, of many conversations. And we hope uh, conversations with people in the room and outside the room, this is not intended to be an elite conversation. It, it's a conversation for Canadians to be having. And the students will actually model some policy ideas, specific policy ideas, and see how they work out, uh, see whether upping immigration to a million a year uh, does X or Y. I shouldn't tell the lead what they're going to do. But um, we've heard ideas, right? There are real policy ideas. We need immigration. We need to fix education. We need to get risk capital at work and start a capital. And uh, obviously, the big pension funds need to do venture capital funds. I think you heard that, Mark, loud and clear. Um, the last thing I want you guys to address, and we're, we're close to time, but all too often, we have these wonderful conversations. Very learned people sit around and produce good reports, and they wind up in a desk drawer. So if there's an innovation we need to crack, it's how do you get the ideas into action? Michael? Well, I touched on that right at the start. I think the word that you've used a number of times is conversation. What we do not need is another report. What we do need is a continuing conversation on the key areas that we have to address. Part of that is people in um, uh, the federal and the provincial governments in particular talking with, call it the innovation community. Uh, we have to get the, the federal government and the provincial governments and the municipal governments where it's appropriate to be talking. And 
have a, uh, a secretariat for those meetings that continually develops the ideas and plays them back and say, we need to have uh, further action on this, further action on that. And it's that continuing conversation to learn from what is going right and what is not going right and putting the focus on the good ideas and making sure that those are implemented. It's got to be part of an ongoing dialogue. David? Well, look, I think that uh, two things, um, and I'm probably repeating myself, uh, and I think this is what's, what's different now as opposed to commissions or reports, is that in the past, Canada has responded appropriately to, quote, crises, as they did with you when you came in in the early 80s and with you in the mid-90s. Uh, so I think that, uh, to a large extent, we have that capacity. Uh, so maybe it's a good thing, and you framed it when you said the word crisis. Uh, so crisis breeds opportunity. And all I can say is, you know, the beautiful thing about Canada against the U.S., the parliamentary system against a republic, is there's no checks and balances, really, when you have a majority government. So in some sense, the people spoke. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has a, a, a mandate. Uh, and uh, the question is, and, and the people spoke saying the status quo, uh, isn't acceptable. So uh, I think that uh, he has a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, in this country, you have a majority, you can screw it up, or you can do it some wonderful things uh, because you can actually push legislation through. Uh, the only thing I would say, again, as an economist, and the things we're talking about, because you talked about culture, and we have to talk about what the government can do in terms of incentives. And that's why tax reform is so important and why raising top marginal rates is actually runs exactly opposite to the things we're talking here today in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. Paul? I think uh, Michael said it, uh, said it earlier. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure he put it this way, but don't rush to write a report, but rush to have this conversation time and time again. And until, in fact, the conversation is so imbued in people that they understand it and that they're prepared to act on it. So I would do this again uh, and, and again and, uh, and again. And I think that what, I, what David has said, what Michael has said, is the kind of thing that's got to be put on the table. It's got to be debated. Uh, and I think if that happens, what you're going to find all of a sudden is that it'll become, it will become part, not just of conventional wisdom, but it will become the kinds of things that government will have to act on, universities will have to act on, and people will have to act on. So what I would suggest is that this can't, this is, I know the first, but don't think that you're going to put all of this up into a, a book. I would think make it, make it more dynamic, make it more dynamic than that. And therefore, I know we're getting close. I just want to say one thing. There's been a lot of talk about U of T. I was a freshman and those guys had graduated. <laughs> <laughs> I want to... Um... Thank you all for being here. Um, I know I speak on behalf of everybody to have this uh, caliber of wisdom and experience and vision and passion uh, on the stage for this has been an honor. And um, I, I hope this is an ongoing conversation with everyone in the room. We will figure out a hashtag and get it out to you. If you follow the Canadian Club, they'll tweet it out. And um, I just want to ask you all to, to join me in thanking our panelists. Well done. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And where do I start to thank these panelists and to thank you all for your time and attention? It is exceptional to, be ha to, have, to have the benefit of these gentlemen and Amanda and the conversation that she was able to navigate and the information she was able to elicit. David, when you think about what happened here today, we can see exactly how these things can come to life. David telling us about productivity and the skills mismatch. And then Michael telling us about our playing to our strengths in fintech and the medical field. And then, of course, with Paul Martin telling us about population and where we can start to fit people into those areas and develop a real strand of wealth creation for all of our benefit. And for that, I'd like to thank again our panel. I would also like to thank Joe Manguette and Waleed Hijazi and Amanda Lang for helping co-found this initiative and, of course, the Canadian Club for putting this all together and to continue this conversation. 
And as well, this series would never have been possible without the great and generous support of the City of Toronto and Gluskin Chef. Thank you again for being there from the very beginning. Greatly appreciated and look forward to having you continuing this conversation with us. And of course, Bloomberg TV Canada, whom we'll get to see debut soon, and the Walrus and Air Canada, our official airline sponsor. And just briefly to reflect on the mission of the Canadian Club and what I feel we have done today was to really to start a conversation, a spark that will hopefully go across this country. As Amanda said, it is not for the 99%, not for the 1%, it really a discussion and hopefully we develop a vision that creates a, a framework for 21st century prosperity for all. Whereas we discuss this entrepreneurship, Canada's business really becomes everybody's business and this is not something for Greens, it's not something for Liberals, it's not something for NDP, it's not something for Conservatives, something that is for all Canadians, that really catapults us from 150 to 200 with strength and opportunity because we all need a strong Canada, the world needs a strong Canada, and it's our opportunity to make that a reality. Thank you very much. This meeting is now adjourned.